All right, good morning, Foothills Church. It's good to see everyone here this morning. My name is Greg Gibson. I have the privilege of serving as our Bearden Location Pastor. I want to welcome our Bearden Location this morning. And I do want to say to our Maryville Location, I don't know if you know this or not, but it's been almost six months since we've been one church in two locations now. And yeah, we can celebrate that together. And uh, it has been a ton of fun. There is a ton of excitement and energy at our Bearden location. And, and our team is, is working really hard. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but at 6 a.m., the first group of volunteers gets to Bearden Middle School. And they start unloading a box truck. And uh, they set up the auditorium. They uh, do different things, clean the whole place. I mean, it is nasty. And then at 8 a.m., our next group of volunteers gets there. We start setting up the cafeteria and we start setting up all of our kids' rooms. We have service at 11 a.m. right now. And then at 12.30, we start packing up everything, starting with the kids' rooms, back into the cafeteria, back into the auditorium. We load up the truck. The truck door goes up at 2 p.m., just in time to do it again next week. And, uh, and so um, nine small groups right now meeting in Knoxville. Uh, Maryville Location, can we put our hands together and celebrate one more time all our Bearden Location? My, my sermon title this morning is this. It's bringing great joy to a great city. Bring great joy to a great city. And uh, like you, I have many titles. I am a husband, I'm a father, I'm a pastor. But over the last couple months, I've had this incredible and amazing and honorable title called fourth grade girls basketball coach. And let me tell you, man, it's a trip. And, uh, and so they, my daughter goes to a local school in town. They asked me to coach the basketball team. And, and, uh, and so... We've had, we had a great season. So we went 15 and two. And uh, two weeks ago, we, we played for what was called like the small school area championship, right? So we get to the tournament and we end up playing this team that's like our area rival, right? And, uh, and so we, we, we lost to them in the season with a riveting score of nine to eight, okay? Let, let me give you some color commentary though. So, so I've got our girls in a one-three-one full court press, right? I release the Lions. So we, we average about 35 to 40 points a game. But if we played this team that we, we met a couple weeks ago in the championship 10 times, we'd win five, they win five. I mean, we are evenly matched. And uh, it, is, it is a ton of fun. So at, leading up to the week, I'm getting texts from parents, hey, we've got to win this game, right? They're just as fired up as the kids are about this. And it's not like rec basketball or upward basketball. It's like the city or the school team, right? Like still terrible, but the school team. And uh, so we get to the game and, and just a little bit more color commentary. There's like 300 plus people in the gym. It is stupid silly. And so... We get there, everybody's like parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, you know, cousins are there. Uh, there's like 35 cheerleaders, so their parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins are there. Then the fourth grade boys are playing right after us in the championship for them, so they come early and watch, and all their family members are there 
as well. So we start the game and at halftime, it is one to zero. It's a, it's a beautiful display of like offensive finesse. And so we end up winning the game eight to five. Yes. <laughs> Guys, if you knew me, you would know how much my heart just needed that. Thank you so much for that affirmation. Um, but we end up winning the game eight to five. And uh, on the way home, one of the parents' dads calls me. And he's like, Greg, man, he's like, I have been, uh, I- I'm from LA. I've been to the Staples Center like 50 times. I've been to basketball games all over the country. Like I've, I've, I've like seen Duke in North Carolina play. I'm at, I'm at Tennessee games. He's like, that was one of the most intense games I've ever been to. <laughs> I was like, man, I hear you. That was incredible. The game was at 11 a.m. It was like 11 p.m. before I came down off the adrenaline high. Fourth grade girls basketball, let me tell you. So I'm asking Grace, I'm like at dinner that night, I'm like, so why do you think it was so intense? And without missing a beat, she was like, Greg, because you are so intense. And she goes on to say, like, I don't know if you know this or not, but everybody in the gym was feeding off of your energy. And I was like, okay, I can see that, right? I mean, it's true. I've had a higher baseline of energy my whole life. It served me well as an adult, um, not so well as a child. Uh, But as I began to think about this illustration and kind of pulling out this ingredient from it, uh, I think it, from, from, from what I am experiencing about the Christian life, right? I've been a Christian for almost 17, 18 years at this point. And, and from that experience, again, over and over, and experiences like that, I am convinced that the Christian life should be just like that. Not like, like you know, over the top energy. That's not what I'm saying. Or like hyper extroversion, you know, um, I, or like walking in a room and your personality fills the room. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the contagious side, the contagious edges of our faith. As Christians, we should live in such a way where we do bring great joy to our city. And I've been thinking about this concept for, for some time and how the collective faith of Christians begins to be the most contagious thing to the entire world. And, and I wanna say it this morning, this way, as our big idea, is that Christians should live in such a way, Christians should live in such a way that, and, and here's, here's the, the point, wherever we go, wherever we go creates behind us And see this, a wake of redemptive activity. A wake of redemptive activity. And in parentheses here, I'm I'm defining that as just goodness, truth, and beauty. So wherever we go as Christians, whatever we do, whatever our hands decide to do, whatever we give our, our energy and resources in the margin of our life to, wherever we go should create a wake of redemptive activity. Think of a, of, of a boat, right? A, a, a boat going across the water, creating the wake behind it. That's the illustration that I want you to see in your mind this morning. Maybe you watch Discovery Channel and you've seen a, a herd of some kind of animal 
running through the prairie and there's dust flying up everywhere. That's the illustration that I want you to see this morning. As Christians go about doing our lives, as Jesus followers go about doing the things of our lives, behind us, there should be a wake of redemptive activity taking place wherever we go. And and the dust should settle into goodness, truth, and beauty things. And so that is uh, the lens through which I want us to think about our text this morning. Wherever we go as followers of Jesus, there should be this wake of redemptive activity. However, however, I think the tension is real for us in our context. So we live, surprise, in the Christian Bible Belt South, right? We love two things in our context. We love football and we love to judge other people. And, you know, don't lie or kid to yourself. I mean, we just did a whole three-week series on minding your own business. We love to judge other people. So, you know, I'm I'm at my house a couple weeks ago, and I'm talking with my neighbor. And uh, we're outside, and uh, our properties connect. So I'm kind of standing on mine. He's standing on his. We're facing each other. And then this truck pulls onto our street. And uh, and, and, and he kind of, like, is looking at me, but then just, like, his whole posture changes. He kind of goes, like, you know, like turns and, and uh, just kind of like watches this truck go by. And I'm just like watching him and watching this truck. And I'm like, oh snap, are we about to draw? Like what, what is happening in this moment? And, and, and it is very much um, how in our context, it's, it's, it's really what I call a defensive posture. Like we're, we're on the defensive thing. It's not good, it's not bad, it's just who we are. Right, it's just who we are. It's just us versus them kind of faith. But here's the difference in a defensive faith and an offensive faith, right? For our purposes here, defensive faith creates walls to keep culture out. There's a part of that, as Christians, we gotta live that way, right? We wanna be apologetically focused, driven, defend the faith, contend for the faith. This is the book of Jude. Also, we wanna, be an, we wanna have an offensive faith that creates a wake of redemption into culture. So again, the things that we do, the time that we have, the resources that we steward, all leaving this wake of redemption behind us. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. And I I want to give us, though, kind of a a quick um, running start into Acts 8 this morning. So kind of cannonball splash. Think Think about that. Like big splash. At Bearden, I hope you just pictured me coming off the stage into the terrible wooden chairs that you're sitting in right now. So before we read this section, though, let's start where we often start here at Foothills Church. It's with the Great Commission in Matthew 28. When Jesus rose from the dead, he gathered all his disciples. And what did he say to them? He said, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and do what? Make Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the very ends of the age. So I want you to see right from the beginning that no one defines the mission of the church but Jesus, right? Amen? Like no pastor, no church, no missions organization, no denomination. Jesus defines the mission of the church. 
he, b- before he ascended into heaven, he gathers everybody together and he says, hey, this, this thing, this message, this gospel, I'm entrusting it to you. I'm handing it off to you now. Now it needs to go to the nations. That's the picture that we are seeing, this wake of redemptive activity. But first, you know, we need to define what is a disciple. And here at FC, if you've been to base camp or maybe you've been to camp two or even camp three, you've heard us define disciple as this, someone who is committed to following Jesus, someone who's committed to being changed by Jesus, and someone who's committed to the mission of Jesus. And what's important about this, don't tune out, because what's important about this is that this is, what, this is who we are as followers of Jesus, right? We follow him, we're committed to being changed by him in, in action and attitude, and we're committed to the mission. We're committed to leaving the wake. And then we go and teach other people how to do that too. It is circular, right? This person desires to do this with other people. And then Jesus tells us um, right after Matthew 28, what is going to happen with this gospel that he's about to entrust us. He says in Acts chapter one, he gathers again all the, the apostles and disciples together and they're in a room like this and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And I want you to, there's a reason we highlighted these places because you're gonna see in our text this morning uh, where the gospel has gone up to this point in Acts eight. But you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Sumeria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Okay, visual. Here's where we're at right now, in the book of Acts. Jerusalem is this little red circle over here. Right, Jesus gives us the great commission. He says the gospel's entrusted to you now. It's gonna go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and this is how it begins to spread. So you see it goes from Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria. The green uh, dotted circle is is Paul's missionary journeys, right? From Acts 10 through 28 that we see. And then the gospel somehow comes across the ocean to us and it continues around the world again and again and again because the mission of the church never changes, does it? Never changes to make disciples. And so my question is, how does the gospel then go from Jerusalem all the way to Samaria, which is what we're gonna read where the gospel has gone in Acts chapter eight. And here is, uh, here's kind of like the, the running start, you know, like can opener splash, um, beautiful form. Acts two, Peter preaches the first sermon in the history of the New Testament church. Uh, he, the Holy Spirit descends on Peter People are hearing the gospel right in their own language and thousands of people, the Bible says, come to faith. Acts three, people start getting healed by the works and the wonders of the apostles. Acts four, so now there's people who believe in Jesus. They have everything in common. They have a common mission for more people to hear about this message. Then in Acts five, the city leaders are noticing, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on? So the apostles get arrested. Acts six, Stephen gets arrested. Acts seven, Stephen gets killed for his faith. He's the first martyr in the New Testament church. And then in Acts eight, which we're gonna read in just a moment, Christians are scattered because of the persecution. Saul is ravaging the church. You guys remember who Saul is? The apostle Paul? He he comes to faith and, and, and writes the rest of the New Testament basically 
But there's this thing happening in the city that I want to bring our minds attention to. There's persecution happening. Christians are scattered. But there's still great joy in that city. And I'm asking why. What's happening on the surface that there can be such hardship, such persecution, but yet there can still be such a wake of redemption happening because of the joy that's in that city. And so let's read together Acts chapter eight, verses one through eight. Um, The Bible says, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great uh, lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them uh, the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And here, here's the, the point that I want you to see. So there was great joy in the city. There's great joy in the city. And as I am looking at this and I'm then reading the text and I'm looking at the context and the circumstances of where the early church finds themselves in, I'm like, man, something's not adding up here. Aren't our circumstances supposed to determine our happiness? Aren't, aren't like the things that are happening in life supposed to affect the joy with which we live? And there's this intense persecution happening, but there's also great joy that is evident in the church. And so the question that I'm asking is this, how is there so much joy in a persecuted city? And maybe we can answer it this way, because there was great joy in the Christians who lived there. Great joy in the Christians who lived there. And I wanna, for the rest of our time, I wanna give us three ways, three ways that we can bring great joy to a great city. And really two cities, right? Maryville and Knoxville. Three ways that we can bring great joy to a great city. And the first one is to live with peace. And I wanna talk just for a few minutes about joy and happiness and the difference between the two. Because I think we know there's a difference, but I don't know if we can always define it, put vocabulary behind it, and then actually believe it. And so I do want you to see that happiness is an emotion. It is an emotion. Joy, unlike happiness, is a choice. When I read passages of scripture like this in the book of Acts, where believers are are dragged out of their house and put in prison or even worse, killed, I'm asking the question, how does joy become a choice in that circumstance, right? If happiness is an emotion that is attached to something conditional, then it makes sense. My wife makes me happy. Sometimes my kids make me happy. You know, winning a fourth grade girls championship uh, makes me happy, bacon, right? I mean, just go down the list here. But, but these, are, these are choices um, that are conditions, right? And they produce this happiness in my heart. Joy, 
on the opposite end is a choice that's purposefully made. It's a choice that's purposefully made. It is an attitude of the heart with which we live. And that's why it is difficult to feel joy uh, at times, but it is possible to feel joy even in the most difficult times. That's why we can understand James chapter one when he says to consider it joy when what? We face trials of many kinds. So peace then, much like joy is something we should have all the time as Christians. Look at these verses. Let the what? Peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Look, what, look at uh, this verse here in Philippians where Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is an amazing verse because it shows us that the peace of God doesn't come from anything conditional. It absolutely comes from who God is first in Christ. In fact, he gives us an illustration that surpasses. It goes around. Everything that makes sense in this moment, in this circumstance, the peace of God goes around that and maybe even sometimes through that and collides with our hearts and our minds. And I think if we put these two texts together, Colossians and Philippians together, then it seems like the peace of God or the peace of Christ should hold sway in us, should function in us. But, but here's what I want you to see, this illustration. In, in so many ways, it should take up permanent residence in our life. It should take up permanent residence in our hearts. And much like joy, peace here is something for which we should fight for in our lives. So in many ways, joy and peace can be interchangeable. If we have peace rooted in Christ that surpasses understanding, then we also experience joy regardless of circumstance because joy is not based on any circumstance or condition. And so I think for us, joy is not a choice, or joy is a choice, I mean, peace is a choice. Joy is not an emotion. Peace is not an emotion. Joy can hold sway in our minds and hearts. Peace can do the same. One theologian says this, joy is the manifestation and presence of the peace of God in your heart. I love that. We can pause, breathe for a second, and realize, yeah, I need that. I haven't been living with the peace of God in my life. Circumstances are causing too much anxiety. There's things that are happening that are outside of my control that are determining actually how I'm living. How crazy is that? But the Bible says the peace of God comes into our life and when it does, it creates a posture like no other. It creates an ethos in us like no other. And so how do we bring joy to a city, I think the first thing we have to do well is live with peace. And then the second thing is this, is live with purpose. Live with purpose. So if you look with me at the Bible, uh, at Acts chapter eight, see Philip's activity in a city with heavy persecution. What's he doing in verse five? He's preaching the word. 
What's he doing in verse six and seven? Philip is, is performing signs and miracles. A paralyzed person gets healed. He starts casting out demons. And even amongst persecution, Peter is leaving, uh, or, I'm, I'm sorry, Philip is leaving a wake of redemptive activity. You see the illustration? He's leaving a wake of redemptive activity because he's living with intentionality, intentional faith with purpose. And because there's this wake of redemptive activity, I think then that last sentence begins to make sense. There was much joy in that city. It's almost like living with purpose comes after or is built upon living with peace. Uh, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to India and I was there for a couple weeks and, um, and I was, it was like my fifth day there and we were eating a cafe for lunch and uh, we were walking back to the car. So we were in Mumbai. Mumbai is like three New York cities, you know, so it's massive. People everywhere, cows everywhere. I mean, it's just, it's huge. So I, he's like, hey, Greg, you wanna drive? And I was like, absolutely I do. You know what I mean? Like, this is gonna be like a real life video game. Throw me the keys. And so for like two hours, I'm driving through Mumbai, dodging anything you could think of, animal-wise, person-wise, like weird-looking bikes that have like a top and a motor on them. And I mean, I get, we get to our destination, and, and you could like ring out my shirt. Um, it was so much uh, just focus in how it drained me. Uh, but that silly illustration is pointing to how we should always live, I think. Kind of head up on a swivel, looking for spaces to bring redemptive activity into. So if I'm living with intentionality, I'm noticing the needs of my neighbors. I'm noticing the needs of my city. I'm noticing the needs of my church. I'm noticing the needs of the people that I do life with that are in my small group. There's a head up on a swivel mentality, living with purpose, leaving a wake of redemption of goodness, truth, and beauty in the spaces of people's lives and in our city and community that need it the most. And it is a faith with a plan. It is a faith with a desire to grow. It is not a reactionary faith. Moms and dads in the room, parenting with a purpose, marriaging with a purpose, businessing with the purpose, right? Fill in the blank. Here's the point. Whatever you do, you do it with what? You do it with purpose. You do it with purpose. Let's leave the wake. And then the third point is live with passion. So live with peace, live with purpose, live with passion. Absolutely stunning alliteration. You're, thank, you're welcome for that. That's amazing. Here, 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 here's what this does not mean though. Living with passion does not mean I'm just like skipping around all day with a fake smile on my face, uh, you know, uh, being fake about life, looking like an idiot. That is not what I mean at all. Here's what this does mean. Living with passion um, is the fourth grade girls basketball game, the contagious parts of it, right? Do you see that? It's the things in your life that are contagious. It's the things in your life that people see and they're like, oh man, I want that. There's something different. There's a peace that's there. There is purpose that guides, right? 
and, and something is happening, and maybe we could say it this way, if peace anchors you in the craziness of life, purpose guides you, then passion inspires others. Passion is what people then begin to notice. Oh man, this guy, I, there's, there's these contagious things about him. Oh, this girl, there's this, these contagious things about her that I want in my life. It's this wake of redemption that begins to inspire other people. So I wanna close with two stories. The first story is a story that you've probably heard, maybe you haven't, but it's a story out of the Old Testament about a guy named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was like a Swiss army knife kind of guy, like the ultimate layman leader. And Nehemiah, um, he was in uh, a, 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 a context um, where the king ruled and he served a king named King Artaxerxes. And in the beginning of Nehemiah chapter one, he meets these guys outside. I don't know where they're at, but they're kind of outside the temple and the place that they're in. And they, they say, Nehemiah, you're not gonna believe the news, but the wall of Jerusalem has just burned down to the ground. And Nehemiah has a reaction. And he has a crazy reaction. If you, if you kind of look at the scriptures and, and pull it out, for three months, he mourns, he prays, he weeps, and he fasts. But upon hearing this news, and then the end of chapter one just has this small sentence, he was cupbearer to the king. And then chapter two starts, and three months after that, he formulates this plan. He's like, okay, if there's anybody who can get the king to give resources to the rebuilding of a wall, it's me. After all, right, I am the cupbearer to the king, this just so happened position. And by the way, when I say just so happened, we believe uh, there's no just so happened moments, right? In God's kingdom, God's ecology. Uh, this is purposeful. He's cut bare to the king. He goes to the king. He says, King Artaxerxes, here's what I need to go and rebuild the walls of a city that I love. King Artaxerxes grants uh, what he needs directly to him. He gets on the road. He starts headed to um, Jerusalem. He faces some criticism and opposition on the way. These guys named uh, Sanballat and, and Tobiah, like great Klingon names that we're never gonna name our kids. They, they like confront him and he works through that criticism and opposition. He get to, gets to Jerusalem and he spends three days in Jerusalem sneaking out at night to go survey the damage so nobody sees what he's doing. Then he comes up with a plan after three days and he rallies everybody that's left in Jerusalem. He rallies everybody that's left and he pitches this inspiring vision to rebuild the walls, right? God has gotten us this far. God will fight for us. He will continue to fight for us. Our promises are in the covenants that he made with Moses and with David and with Abraham. God will fight for us. And then if you remember the story, what do they do? They say, let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. And then most of the time, if you're reading Nehemiah, you skip chapter three and you go to chapter four because that's kind of more about the story of how they're building the wall. Chapter three, what everybody skips over is the genealogy. So it's everyone who participated in the building of the wall, the rebuilding of the wall, and their positions in rebuilding the wall. But there is this phrase in chapter three that jumps off the page. 
and next to them. And next to them. And next to him. And next to her. And next to this person. He worked on the lower part of the wall. And next to him, the, this person who worked on the upper part of the wall. And next to him, the person who prayed for the work that's happening to rebuild the wall. Next to him, the person who's defending the wall from people who would come again and try and take Jerusalem. And the other story I wanna tell you is a story that you've heard, Um, but it's another great story, and it's this just so happened story also comes out of Jerusalem. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel story. And it's not just a story about a bunch of people bringing redemption to the world, but it's a story about a God who is gathering a people for his glory. And it's a God who does this through the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. And in the gospel story, in the gospel story, what I want you to see, you don't see the phrase and next to them. In the gospel story, you see the phrase and for him and for her and for this people, and for this nation, and for this world, Jesus came and died. What an amazing story that it is. And it's not only a true story, but it's a story that you and I get to be invited into, and not only invited into and then just become spectators, but active participants in what God is doing in the world and in the great commission, this gospel message, going to all nations from Jerusalem, now to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth through the intentional faith and life of Christians who leave a wake of redemption behind them in all that they do. And it's a story not just about joyful people bringing joy to a city. It's about a, also about a new city. It's about a new city where that will one day be a, a, a city full of joyful people, redeemed people, sons and daughters. And at the end of the story, in Revelation 21, verse one through two, we see this. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And if you ever wondered when Jesus comes back, like our faith is pointing to that, he's coming back, he's gonna completely defeat sin and death, but he's not coming back empty-handed. The Bible said he's coming back and he's bringing new heavens and new earth, and then he's bringing this. And I saw the holy city, the new what? The new Jerusalem, this new city, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Just work of Nehemiah to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. This gospel story coming out of the city of Jerusalem and our faith pointing to this new city that we'll all be a part of one day. But until then, man, we've got some work to do, don't we? We've got work to do. We've got a wake to leave. And so Bearden, Bearden, we are leaving our wake right now. We're leaving our wake right now. And next to them, people got there at 6 a.m. this morning to unload a box truck. And next to them, there are people who are getting there to set up a cafeteria and put up pipe and drape and, and get gum off floors and throw trash away in the parking lot. And next to them, 
there are people who are serving and opening doors and who are at the first time guest tent. And next to them, there are people who are serving children right now this morning in Bearden. We are leaving a wake. We are participating in what God has called us to do and being a part of the Great Commission. And Maryville, man, what an opportunity to leave a Grand Canyon-sized wake right now. With the people that we have, the resources that we have, the intentionality of this church, the opportunities to have our head up on a swivel, seeing the spaces in our city that the gospel needs to go to, that redemptive activity needs to fill. Imagine what we could do. And next to them, small groups are branching all over the place. And next to them, people are coming to faith everywhere. And next to them, ministries are being started. Maybe nonprofits are being started, maybe redemptive businesses are being started that speak to these places in our city that need goodness, truth, and beauty. Nehemiah is putting his hands, hands on the shoulders of Israel and he's shaking them up from their spiritual slumber that they're in. And maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you're there today. Maybe you've been there for a season. But my call this morning is to wake up from that slumber. Wake up from that spiritual slumber. Arise and build. Head up next to them. Begin to participate in what God is doing, not only in history, but also in your life. And I promise you, you will experience an overwhelming sense of purpose, of peace and passion that creates joy that brings collectively to a city. Can we do that? This wake of redemptive activity all for the fame of Jesus alone. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We are thankful for the work first of your son, Jesus. Let us in this moment remember that, that the weight of our work is light, that we don't have to work for any title, any accomplishment, any favor from you, but you have shown your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, your son died for us. And so this morning, God, I, I pray that we, we first remember that in our own hearts. Secondly, God, I, I pray that everyone in this room and everyone at Bearden would remember their own cupbearer to the king moments how you already got them to this point, how you're already working in their family, how you're already working in their children's lives, how you're already working in their marriage, how you're already working in their businesses, all the above. Let us live with a faith centered on the truth that this message, this gospel is going 
to the ends of the earth, starting right in our own hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for watching this video. We'd love for you to like the video and leave a comment. And we also encourage you to subscribe and click the bell so you never miss a post from Foothills Church. To learn more about FC, just head to our website by going to foothillschurch.com or by clicking the link in the description below.